It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Arsenal kickstart their season with a huge North London derby win. Manchester City send out an ominous message to their title rivals. Old Trafford holds no fear for Aston Villa. And we ask, should drinking alcohol in your seats return to football? This is The Game. Hello to all of you and thank you for joining us on Where I Am, a sunny Monday morning. And to all of you as well, Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson and Tom Roddy. Hello, how are you? Good, you. We don't like that question, Hugh. It's Listen, too, it's, it's, too, it's, too, it's too open-ended. <laughs> and if I answered it properly, it would be a soliloquy. So, you know, let's I mean, not go there. I mean, it's just, it's small talk. Come on, guys, you know, just <laughs> give me something to say. Yeah, fine, all good. You know, no one needs to know the trials and tribulations of a Times journalist. You can write to about it. We give you column inches for all of that. Just say, I'm good, Hugh. How are you? I say, great. What a weekend for sport it was. You know, maybe the headline writers in the Times are going to reflect most today on some poor performances, I think, because Spurs channeled their inner Anthony Joshua and European Ryder Cup team with one of the worst North London derby performances possibly ever. Arsenal, on the other hand, were electric. Uh, a 3-1 win at the Emirates Stadium, but there were three goals up after 34 minutes. So let's start with this, of course. It was an impressive result. Um, Gregor, I'm going to start with you on this. What would Spurs trying to do, firstly? And secondly, we know what Arsenal were trying to do. It was easy for them. Uh, what were Spurs trying to do? That's the kind of million-dollar question. They, they look so pedestrian. And as, again, sort of, there's no coherence to their to their shape, to their play. You know, I said last week as well about the the glaring sort of lack of intensity in their play. And then there was that, that stat that said that the, they've covered the, the least ground of any team in the Premier League this season. So it's there in black and white now. There's no, there's no escaping it. I also can't see a team. I can't see a Tottenham team without, you know, we spoke about the midfield balance and I thought they were they were good against Wolves. I thought that was a bit of a step forward. But I can't see a team without Oliver skipping it just now. I don't think Ndombele or, De- or Delhi are kind of going to do enough defensively to to help help out Hoiberg in midfield. So, you know, people talk about, is that looking negative? Is it too defensive? Just, they need it because they don't have anyone. And is a luxury. He's, you know, he, he has moments of brilliance, but you think he just does not do enough without the ball. And he's, he's a liability, to be honest, to be brutally honest with you. So, yeah, Spurs were a mess. Uh, but you have to give Arsenal credit because... They were they were the opposite. They were full of drive and intent and dynamism. I kind of maintained that I think 
they needed to get their best players on the pitch and this looked very much you know very close to Arsenal's best team and you've got to look at it now and think if these guys are playing anywhere near their their best their, what, what they're capable of this is a team that's that's going to cause anyone in the Premier League trouble Emil Smith-Rowe is a brilliant talent so that second goal the kind of movement and the, the speed he had to kind of drive away from the defender the composure to pick out the, the cut back yeah, there was a lot, lots of positives for Arsenal. Um, but the, the main thing, I think, again, that was something closer to their best team. You, you look at Ben White and, and uh, Gabriel, you know, played a few games now in, in, in a row, clean sheets. Tommy Yasu's coming, looks really solid. Tierney's fit. Even Xhaka, do you, can you, do you not think, you know, I was thinking watching this game, if Xhaka continues to play at this level, is there any point at which you can say you can almost take his moments of madness every now and then. Do you think well, Do you think <laughs> Arsenal can ever get to that stage? Because he is playing well, we have to say it. But no matter how much of a kind of d- danger he can be, he's playing really well. We spoke about him during the Euros. I mean, he was a different player at times with Switzerland. But again, it was a red card that, that cost him, you know, in the Euros. And it was like, you, you probably would take his positive performances for that one moment during the Euros if you're Switzerland. And maybe Arsenal will take a couple of those moments during the season if he can keep to that high level. So I agree with you on that one. And it, I think it's right that you pick out a totally different team for, for compared to the start of the season for Arsenal. With that in mind then, Alison, have Arsenal turned a corner? Maybe not just the fact that it was a great occasion that Mikel Arteta was running down the touchline and screaming to the fans and punching the air. And there was this joyous element of Arsenal, you know, running riot in a North London derby. But of course, a feeling just that the team is much stronger than before. Yeah, there's um, there's a quite compelling narrative arc emerging at Arsenal. After the Norwich game, that was when Arteta decided to show his vulnerable emotional side and explain that he would, he'd just been totally humbled and blown away by the fact that no one was blaming him for their dreadful start to the season. And there was no negativity and everyone wanted to make it work. And you thought, "Mm, are you just saying that because you've narrowly beaten Norwich? Or is this the truth? Is is it a club that has, behind the scenes, been able to absorb the negativity? And, I mean, some really quite, well, quite horrid, insulting stuff about the club, the way it's run, and Arteta not being... not being, not not having the the, the 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 right sort of background to take on a club of the size of Arsenal. You know, it's his first job, and he, you know, we've said it on this podcast. You know, is that is that the right thing to do? Appoint somebody who's never managed before, not been through the the tough times elsewhere, and built up this CV, which shows that you you've come through stuff. You sh- should you be learning on the job when it's a club the size of Arsenal? Anyway, um, it could have tipped either way, but lo and behold, you get a. A conveniently timed North London derby and it does I think probably the most notable thing about the Arsenal performance was that they did seem to be extremely comfortable they did they did pass no you know there was that sort of sense of if I bother to beat my man and lay the ball off I know my teammates going to be running for me I know I know we're on the same page here um, there's a joyousness and self-confidence to it which doesn't come from just a few good results. It comes from Arteta having told the truth that they had been behind the scenes really working hard together. 
you know, it's amazing what you can achieve if people have a smile on their face. And if you compare, if you compare the demeanor of even before, you know, before they went behind, Spurs didn't look happy, but Arsenal did look happy. There you go. It's working. <laughs> yeah, you you missed the part where they bought five players for a hundred and sixty million quid as well. But yeah, I, I see what you mean. <laughs> I think it was a match of the day last night. Start about it's only I think it was thirteenth home game in front of a kind of full capacity it was, stadium. It was ninth. It was ninth. ninth actually. Okay, f- even fewer than so. You know that's quite. I think that's quite interesting. I don't. You know, there's been a lot about you know them, and it's not been being a bit toxic, and and uh, you know, it, there's been some seriously difficult times, and you know, almost like it could have been even worse for them if the fans had been there. It, who knows if that's true or not? I mean, it certainly it looked like a like a fantastic atmosphere there there yesterday. Um, the only thing I would say is, you know, Arteta afterwards sounded pretty euphoric, and you can't blame him for it. But I wouldn't get, you know, I wouldn't get too carried away. I think still we're saying they've got all their best players on the pitches now. I still think they're pretty thin behind that. Look to their bench, Lukonga. Yes, you could see him being part of the part of the starting eleven. But beyond that, I'm not sure. I think you know Lacazette's been pretty disappointing. Martinelli maybe, but I still think beyond this starting eleven, they're a bit thin. And also, they, they don't have to worry about Europe. They can That's concentrate true. entirely on who they're facing next. There's no juggling. I agree with you. The squad might not be have huge depth, but you can get away with it if you've got no other competitions at all. I think it's massive, actually, for Arteta. I said this at the start of last season, that, that actually qualifying for Europe with the FA Cup win would have been bad for him, I, I thought, because, you know, it's less time on the, the pitch with your players, you know. And this season, he has, you know, a good five days to prepare for every game. So he should, in theory, improve in that regard as well as a very young manager. Tom, I've got to ask you about the other manager, Nuno Espirito Santo. I mean, the game took place 16 days after he was named manager of the month. Things change very, very quickly. It's the first time that Tottenham have conceded three goals or more in three consecutive games since September of 2003. He was asked about his game plan beforehand. He said it would be silly for me to reveal it to the journalist he was speaking to. He could have told his players, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, afterwards, his reaction um, was that he was... He was desperately trying to put the blame on himself, but you could see how furious he was with his with his players. When he spoke to us, when he spoke to the press, he, he was trying to blame himself about bad decisions, but you could see how furious he was and that he wouldn't sort of hold this inquest in public. Um, but the, the, the thing I thought was most damning, really, was the fact that they... they the game began, and this is a North London derby, which Nuno, who, when he's speaking in the media most of the time, is a man of very sort of few words. But he spoke about this game being special, that he understood the importance of a North London derby. And yet it began like it was Man City versus Norwich. They absolutely overran them and and Tottenham looked inferior from the very beginning. And and we know that Gregor listed off the stats but behind their sort of running and um, the, the whether that's the effort that's put in. But this it, it looked like a team who weren't convinced of what they're doing um, or what they've been set out to do. And you just feel at Tottenham at the moment, they're suffering a little bit of an identity crisis because you that statement that Daniel Levy had towards, I think it was just before the end of um, 
the last game of the season when they were looking to appoint a new coach and he said, spoke about returning the DNA of free-flowing attacking football and then you appoint a manager like Nuno who is known for tactics that are frustrating the opposition and it, you, you wouldn't put him in the same bracket as Pochettino um, which is what Levy was was referring to his players now just don't seem convinced of what they're doing they don't seem like they're they, they think it will be effective and of course you got Tottenham who spoke about a rebuild all summer on the other side of the pitch is Arsenal who have actually done it I, I, I think there's a real malaise at Tottenham Hotspur right now um, I, I, listen I got hammered at the start of the season for saying I felt sorry for Harry Kane you, you can't have a heart in your chest if you didn't feel sorry for him yesterday. I know he didn't play that well, but you just look around the pitch and you think it's going to be a long, old season for Harry Kane. You know, you start thinking his, his scoring records are at risk, don't you, Tom? It hinges on him in that if he gets going, if he gets scoring, then things can turn a corner. And even yesterday, there was... I actually think this game was was potentially closer than it actually looked because I remember sitting at the London Stadium last year and Arsenal were 3-0 up at half time I think or it may West Ham might have got a goal just before half time um and I started writing my report very foolishly <laughs> thinking that it was over and of course West Ham come back into the game and I I I I wonder that almost could have happened yesterday because I think the the Ben White challenge on Kane was a penalty, I think. Then you've got uh, the two opportunities that Kane had where he has that gorgeous touch uh, from Dyer's long ball and, and pokes it past um, Ramsdale and you, th- you think it's ju- you think you're going to see the net bulge, but you don't. Um and then what happens? Because you know, Gregor spoke about the the way Arsenal this the ninth game that Arsenal have had fans in. I was actually thinking at the beginning if if this if it didn't start the way it did and Tottenham had got on top of them, Emirates is a stadium that can turn ugly quite quickly, and you would have felt the change in emotion in that stadium if it had gone to three one earlier, if it had gone to three two. I think it could have been a very different outcome. Tom, you went to it. I mean, you didn't get the sense that it meant anything more than, you know, bragging rights in North London, did you? You sort of had the sense that watching the, the, the sort of euphoria in the Emirates that I, I hadn't seen a, a, actually a, a reaction like that and a, and a feeling like that in the Emirates since um, Unai Emery's. I think it was the 4-2 win in the North London derby under him. I think it was probably the best atmosphere since that. But the thing is that the highs at Arsenal after these wins like this are becoming so, so high that it feels a little bit like Man United because then the lows are just so, so low where you're looking to see what happens on Arsenal TV afterwards. But this, it felt like a potential springboard because there is progress from last season where you had the likes of Smith Rowe doing well, Tierney and Saka, but now it feels like much more of a team and the you, you see the influence of the additions. Tommy Asu was excellent. Odegaard was excellent. And even Aubameyang played it really, really well. The problem was they were allowed to do it. There was a massive win too for Manchester City. They went away from home 
and got a win at Stamford Bridge against Chelsea. Many people's favourite for the Premier League title. Alison, you went to this one, didn't you? Did you get a sense that Manchester City had sent out a huge message in terms of that title race? Oh, I don't think I've ever seen a team ever in my entire life want to tell the world they are champions and they're going to be champions again. I don't, I almost felt it was superhuman, the effort that City put into that. They, it's like they are so technically proficient and when it works well, they are such a tight unit, um, heavily coached, tight unit. But they, they ran and they ran and they ran and they ran and they pressed and they hurried and they were everywhere. And you could almost hear Chelsea's like intake of breath, trying to gasp for breath. One way of looking at it is, yes, City had the upper hand. Tactically, they got it right. Tuchel decided to be, oh, this time I'll be the one that tinkers. Why did they do this? Why didn't they just... Anyway, really, really, it's like it's like great brains in football feel they have to show off for the key matches. Absolutely bonkers. Um, I mean, although it fooled it fooled most of the media beforehand because you looked at the team sheets and you thought, oh, this is hilarious. So Tuchel's showing off that he's got two two expensive centre forwards. City weren't able to get Harry Kane; they don't have one at all. So he's going to play them both. But that meant he had to change he had to change his tried and trusted formula. So he went five three two, and it, that that formation was uh, at, uh, attacked by City, so they couldn't. They couldn't make any connections, so you had you had Werner and Lukaku uh, two, two separate from the rest of the team because everybody else was just trying to cope with the relentlessness uh, of City and they're sort of dizzying the way they move the ball, and so they were they were left on their own. So that was two players out of the game, not doing very much. Looking, um, I mean, you know, it was a bit 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 sad really how Lukaku just didn't couldn't get in the game at all. Um, so so it was all down really to two called. Cool, tinkering the way that Pep had tinkered in the Champions League final and tried to be clever and put Gundogan as a the holding midfielder and it didn't work. You think, why do you do this? You're just showing off. Stop showing off. Be who you are. I wouldn't write off Chelsea because of this. It probably it's probably a good thing because it shows it shows where their strengths are. And you you know, I mean they missed Mason Mount a lot, I think, because he, he often provides that connection between the lines and it often does so in a quite subtle way. So you don't really know it until he isn't there. Um, on the other hand, as I was going to say, uh, the goal was actually a bit freaky because it was a, a deflection because um, Mendy in the Chelsea goal was absolutely superb. I think this was the game where I truly understood what a fantastic goalkeeper he is because you are so confident that every decision he makes is the right decision. If he decides to come out, it's the right thing to do. When he claims the ball, he claims it. He doesn't make mistakes. And that must be enormously reassuring for the the defence um, so they would have held out for the, for a nil-nil, which would have been a good nil-nil had it not been for um, a deflected goal. So they're very good at, as we saw at Anfield when it, they were against, when they're down to 10 men, Chelsea, they're very good at holding the fort. What do you make of that, Gregor? Is that where you think it went wrong for Chelsea? Thomas Tuchel showing off a little bit? It's funny, you know, you, that's all extremely persuasive, but they, you know, Alison's referencing the big brains, but they are the big brains, you know, I don't know. I think probably a big big part of where this went wrong was that Chelsea's, one of Chelsea's biggest strengths recently has been getting their fullbacks, the wingbacks so high and wide and joining in and they were just pressed back. They couldn't break out. And the, I thought also the language that Tuchel used afterwards was quite interesting. He kept using the word escape, saying we didn't have the belief to use short passes to escape. We didn't have the belief 
to even use long passes to escape. He knew that that, that was coming. So I think he just didn't see the kind of, you know, City deserve a lot of credit for this, but they weren't able to play through the City's press um, and kind of break through. And you know, you look at that, yeah, it's true, Mason Mount was missed. He, he links, the, links the midfield and attack so well. Havertz does the same. Neither, neither of them were playing. Lukaku and Werner did look isolated. But you've got to see, you know, Kante, we've said, in, in, uh, since Tuchel particularly has arrived, the way he breaks forward, he does everything. He just wasn't allowed to do it either. Same with Kovacic can do that. So I just think that City's press was so good and relentless. And it's true, Alison's saying that City kind of, every time they're questioned, they just kind of seem to go back to what they do best and they do it at their very best. They press like that. And when they have the ball, they pass teams to death and they do it with pace and, you know, intricacy around the box. I just, I just, I've said this from the start. I just, I'm fascinated to see how Grealish develops under, under, uh, under Guardiola as well. The way he, he gets into so many of those positions now where he's kind of around the edge of the box and he just, takes the ball into the box and stands up a defender. And imagine Grealish running at you there, taking all those little touches and waiting for you to kind of make a move and skip into the side. He could have won a penalty when, um, I think it was Aspilicuete stood up and he cut inside and Aspilicuete dangled a leg. He could have gone over on that and he took the shot instead. He's so good at doing that. And I've just, you know, I think he's going to be, he's going to improve so much on the Guardiola. A couple of things to pick up then. I'll pick up with you, Tom. Firstly, Gabriel Jesus' goal was a difference. Alisson referenced it, but um, he brings something different if he's in the middle of the pitch. He's playing out wide at the moment. For me, his goal showed why you need someone, in particular, given City squad right now, him, who is a natural centre forward, a natural forward in the box. He needs to play through the middle more often because that can be the decider, a natural goal scorer, someone with that instinct. I don't think any other City player would have had the instinct to do what Jesus did in that moment. You know, Phil Foden was through the middle for most of the game. For me, that was a waste of Phil Foden and a waste of Gabriel Jesus. It was quite entertaining because uh, I was following the game on TV um, and it was one of those unfortunate moments where I think it was Glenn Hoddle on co-commentary said that, it was time for Riyad Mahrez to come on because he's much more effective on that right-hand side, cutting in far more effective than Gabriel Jesus, so they needed to change it. And I think it was literally a minute before Jesus got the winner. Um, so <laughs> it was one of those unfortunate moments. Um, but the, the, the problem wasn't necessarily that Jesus wasn't effective on the pitch. It was just the positioning. Mahrez probably, he was right, Mahrez probably would have been much better out there, which goes into your point, Hugh, that that Jesus, he needs to be far more central. Get him in those positions where, yes, it took a deflection, but he got the shot away. Um, on Chelsea, I was, I, I was a little bit disappointed, really, because you, you know, Alison referenced the Liverpool game, but they went down to 10 men and you could kind of, it was a respect, it was a really, really respectable performance because it was the, the art of how to play and defend with, with 10 men. In this game, you'd heard Tuchel at the beginning of the season say they were the hunters, Chelsea were hunting the Manchester clubs and Liverpool, but they came into this game with 
kind of they seemed inferior far more inferior and as the european champions you, you wouldn't expect that you you expected a, a bit more swagger and in the end i think it was a fantastic performance from pep guardiola's side but there is you know big challenges ahead for them this week as well away at paris saint-germain in the champions league they've got liverpool away in the premier league as well this week could be a full week that sends an even bigger signal to european football that City are going to be the team to beat this season. And Paris Saint-Germain have won all their games so far this term. They've got, of course, a ridiculous squad, including Messi, Neymar and Mbappe. Just quickly to, to look ahead to that game, Gregor, is this going to be like the greatest Champions League group game of all time? <laughs> oh, hyperbole. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's certainly going to be billed as clash of these two R- ridiculously expensively assembled squads and so many superstars on the pitch um, but it's not going to define the, 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 the even this week I don't think it's going to define their season it, if they if they you know had really kind of humbling defeats in every game you'd be looking at them and thinking okay we're struggling but th- this was a th- that was a, a imperious performance against against Chelsea and I expect them to beat PSG as well PSG, you're right, they've won all their games, but standard in, in Ligue 1 is not necessarily as high. And I watched them against uh, Bruges and they were pretty unimpressive, really. So um, the other thing is, it's you know, obviously with the the, the attacking kind of triumvirate that, that PSG have, how how, uh, how City are going to deal with that? Because, you know, against, against Chelsea, they were so brave, they went 2v2. <laughs> Diaz and Laporte against against Lukaku and Werner. No, not many teams would do that. And as you say, Rodri's sitting on front. So they will try and dominate play, but are they going to be a little bit more cautious, just being aware that they have Kylian Mbappe? It's not it's not Timo Werner. Um and Messi. You know, it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty fascinating. But I don't think it will define uh, their season by any stretch. Hopefully Lionel Messi will get out there on the pitch as well. Tom yes, he's where? injured, isn't he? He could yeah, miss he's his got game. A knee yeah. Problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love it. I love it when Gregor offers up predictions these days. I'm prompted. Been doing this too long. He's settled into the groove finally. He knows what it's all about. That's what the people want. Um, listen, Juventus against Chelsea is another big game uh, in the Champions League this week. We'll react to that on Thursday. Um, but Chelsea probably the favourites in that one. Juventus currently ninth in Serie A. Coming up on the game podcast, we're going to whisk through another couple of games involving Manchester United and Liverpool. Surprising results in both of those games. We'll also talk about the need for alcohol to come back in football stadia in your seat. Is it really needed? Stay with us on the game podcast. Right, another couple of games to whiz through. Aston Villa beating Manchester United at Old Trafford. It's the first time Villa have beaten United in the last 18 Premier League meetings. It was a fantastic performance from Dean Smith's side. Gregor, they got it spot on. Almost um, got what they didn't deserve at the end. Bruno Fernandes skying a penalty. An interesting game once again from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side. What did you make of it? Yeah, it's kind of following on from what Tom was saying about the highs and lows. It's it's <laughs> you know the 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 hope this season for Man Man United fans would be that the cycle wasn't a recurring one again. The kind of familiar peaks and troughs under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and unfortunately, it, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. Um, but you know, I, I think I think Villa deserve a lot of credit. They looked they looked like they had a that was a brilliant performance and 
you know, deserving probably of the of the victory. And also, I think we have to give a, a big shout out to Martinez's kind of mind games for the for the penalty kick. It was brilliant. <laughs> I think he was suggesting that Ronaldo should be taken out, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was. Loved it. So, and then obviously Tyron Ming seemed to like that, enjoy that as well afterwards. So, yeah, that was brilliant. Um, but yeah, I think you know it's the same. We can we can go around the circles with Manchester United. There still look like there's a hole in, in central midfield that needs to be filled, um, and whether they can kind of break down an obdurate defence that which you know which Aston Villa really have and you know have the kind of craft and gale to do so at times. So I, I just think it's going to be Manchester United might edge a little bit closer. I still believe that they might edge narrow the gap a little bit to the to the teams above them. Um, but I still think we're going to see the cycle. I don't think, uh, and I think really, I, I'm not changing my view of this. I think this is the way it is under Solskjaer. And, you know, are, are you willing to let him keep edging his way closer if he, if he can do it? Or is it at some point in time you're going to say this isn't good enough? That's, that could be a question to you though, Hugh, really. <laughs> Listen, people know my views on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Not a surprise. It's not a surprising result, you know. No. Aston Villa are a good side. Any side that goes... I, I think for me, the main thing that stands out is there's a lack of fear. You know, even with a Cristiano Ronaldo in your squad, that Manchester United still haven't built that element of fearfulness in the opposition that maybe some other teams have, that this could be a long afternoon. In fact, I think they're still in the mode that some teams go to Old Trafford and think, Let's have a crack at this because um, teams have got a lot of joy at Old Trafford. They don't seem to be that comfortable. Give it a good go. What's the worst that can happen? You know, whatever you want to say about the Alex Ferguson years, it was very much let's not concede more than three or four. You know, see if we can get away with damage limitation. Manchester United are a long, long way from that. And as, as long as teams continue to go to Old Trafford and think this is our day, this is a, the day that we could beat Manchester United at home and we can be talking about it for years and the fans will love it then Manchester United are going to find it tricky. They haven't yet built that element of fearfulness at home. Alison? You are spot on because that is exactly what Martinez's antics proved. I don't think anyone would dare, any opposition goalkeeper would dare behave that way in the Ferguson era. I don't think any opposition goalkeeper would dare to behave that way at the Etihad, for example. But it's lost, it has lost its aura. If you are the opposition goalkeeper and you feel emboldened, to play what are quite complicated mind games. It's, you know, this is this is this is this was absolute genius. He was actually pointing at Ronaldo, saying, "Oh, shouldn't you be taking it, mate? Let's just make them implode." What is going to make? What is going to make a player who's very good at penalty set taking? I mean, we were all praising uh, Fernandez last season, weren't we? Weren't we? Yes, I think we were, and. Um, and saying, you know, God, he's, he's he just, you know, he's like a robot. He's so cool under pressure. But what you do is you you make him think, oh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna look really stupid if I'm taking it and Ronaldo isn't taking it, and, and he, he skies it to the moon. I mean, it's not it's a proper proper successful playing of mind games. And then, what opposition goalkeeper in the Fergie era would dare to do that little groin grinding jig? At the, <laughs> Having seen, I mean, he didn't save it, Martinez. He didn't save it, but he knew he'd he'd been the cause of the mistake. So he did a little a little sexy jig at the <laughs> at the, the denouement of his little little play. And uh, you know, I just think that in itself, it was very entertaining. But it also, on a more serious note, sums up 
that it, there's a bit of comedy at Old Trafford now. And it's, you know, it's not, uh, it's not supposed to be that way, is it? You're supposed to be sort of almost win the game before you kick off because of your reputation and your aura and the number of superstars in your team. But nobody, I mean, you know, Villa went there thinking it was hilarious that they've got um, Cristiano Ronaldo and how they're going to make, you know, fit an ego into that team. And they exploited that. One other thing to say about Villa was I think what will probably, they will look back and say what defined and created their what will probably be a quite successful campaign was the fact that they lost 3-0 to Chelsea two weeks ago, but played really, really well and almost outplayed Chelsea and somehow lost 3-0. That must really hurt more than anything else as a manager. They didn't deserve it. And I think they've used that indignation to, um, rather than break them, it's made them. Big tip of the cap as well to Tyrone Mings for his kind of on-field decision to say to Courtney Hawes, switch let's switch positions because he's the one who's everyone's trying to they were following mostly and then Courtney Oz scores, scores the goal and also I have to, we have to kind of say Solskjaer trying to play this kind of uh, you know aren't we haven't we been robbed card all the time it's nonsense what was he talking about saying that that should be that should be an offside or that he was getting pushed when it it's just he, he does this quite frequently now I don't think it suits him either it's like just accept that your team were well below par today and you're probably deserving of the defeat um, and try and, try and do better. Absolutely. A fantastic day for Aston Villa. Bruno Fernandes, second penalty miss in 23 for Man United, by the way. My advice, get back to the stutter, okay? He's in the same camp as Jorginho on this. Whenever you just blast it, you're on penalties because of the stutter. Do the stutter, okay? That's me giving advice on penalties to Bruno Fernandes. Yeah, you can, um, <laughs> yeah, I'll move on very quickly. Let's go to the game at the Brentford Community Stadium. It was a great game, great result for Brentford as well in West London, a three-all draw against Liverpool. Now, I think Brentford are going to surprise a lot of teams this season, Tom. What did you make of their performance? I suppose belief is the thing that sums up Brentford. Um, and I was listening to Ivan Tony talk earlier this morning on TalkSport um, about this season and, and, and more importantly about last season. And what he was saying is that they have this they had this belief last year that they were a Premier League side playing in the Championship. So it, 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 mentally, his point was that mentally they were arriving to the Premier League, already believing they deserve to be a part of it. And of course, we've seen the progress of Brentford over the years. And, and sometimes you see teams come up and think, God, they're fortunate to have made that just scraping through the playoffs. Maybe maybe um, teams teams that have come over the years. But Brentford are a side that have developed and developed and you know the opening game of the season against Arsenal, it was the, the win was 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 pretty much expected. I don't know whether Saturday evening's result was, but it, it, they're a team that are full of belief and they're not limited to one style of play. And and what I like about them is that they are a team, you know, watching the Rory McElroy interview after the Ryder Cup uh, last night, really moving interview talking about an individual sport and coming together and playing as a team. And he was so emotional about the what it was like and, and and the need to play for each other. And that's what that's what I think sometimes we sort of forget in football. 
and that's what what Brentford have got. They've formed this sort of beautiful blend of players with real quality, like Canos and Tony, um, and then players who have developed and, and are part of the journey and are, and are playing to a level far higher than we'd ever expect them to. I just noticed that uh, James Gearbrandt, who was who was at the game, gave. David Ray at um, nine, which is quite high. I mean, it's a really high mark. Very few people get a nine. Very few goalkeepers get a nine. When they've let in three goals, that's a bit strange. But um, <laughs> he, 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 he told, I interviewed him and he told me that um, they, just to illustrate their togetherness, um, in the playoff final against Fulham, um, when Brentford lost that time, um, he made he he was criticised for his positioning. He was beaten from a thirty-five yard free kick, which you're really not supposed to do. He was expecting the cross, and after that game, uh, Thomas Frank said to him, uh, "Don't worry about it. Actually, I want you to be more adventurous next season. We're going to go up with you playing even more off your line. Thank you." Uh, really weirdly, and then he did, and they they got promotion. And after the promotion. Um, Thomas Frank said to him, see, I told you, I told you we knew what we were all doing. And it's like, I don't know, you can't pull that off unless everyone's buying into it. Everyone loves the manager. And you just think, yeah, why not? Why not? Why not? Why can't we be different? Why can't we? They don't know their place as well. I love that. They're not, there's no deference there. They're just, fan, they're just, they're just a fantastic club who, and you say you listen to Ivan Toning on TalkSport. I mean, his first interview after promotion, he said, when asked what his expectations were, Tony said, oh, well, I think we could probably win the league, win the Premier League. <laughs> and, and that looked ridiculous, but actually I think it speaks of just so much confidence. And they care about what they do, not what other people do. Although they did analyse this and they decided if they overloaded the back post, they'd get joy and they did. So they... They are quite good at spotting potential weaknesses. James's uh, markings aside, it was actually an interesting report because he was saying David Raya last season, you know, he's, his importance actually. Brentford are playing very direct a lot of the time. They're playing, they're hitting up to Tony, and Tony's won, won more duels in there than any other player that's played so many minutes, whatever. And last season, Raya was played 300 more passes in the championship than any other goalkeeper. This season they're playing, he's still doing that. And as Alison's saying, that thing about stepping high, James referenced in the report, thing the opter it called keeper sweepings. So he's basically off his line, ready to pounce on any balls at the top. He's performed more, more of them than any other keeper. So he's he actually a really important player for them in the way that they, they're constructing attacks. And he's acting like a keeper, uh, super keeper. But you have to, two more things. One is that they're making every game like a cup tie. At, at home you know what I mean the atmosphere and teams have done that before Sheffield United did that when they first came up it won't last but it's really kind of invigorating for them just now it, undoubtedly you know they're they're going to survive and they could finish in the top half but you know more long term it's the kind of pragmatism that Tom was referencing the way that they're mixing their play up they're going direct they can dominate the ball and I think they'll shift that depending on who the opponent is and the last thing is just Tony. There's always a question mark when somebody's making that step up. He scored a bag full of goals. He had, that was his first time really succeeding in the championship. But he's been outstanding. He's such a handful. He's like, you know, that ball when he ran through and Van Dyke had to be at his very best to kind of show the pace and the power to snuffle that out. Um, but against Wolves last week, he was incredible. He's just, he's really stepping up to the plate for Brentford and, and he'll score the goals as well. 
They're been a joy to watch. Great addition. Mohamed Salah got his 100th Premier League goal. Fantastic for him. Incredible rate of scoring and probably Liverpool's best goal scorer in the Premier League era. But, you know, he should have scored more, Alisson, shouldn't he? Is it two points dropped for Liverpool? Well, they'll definitely think that. Um, uh, absolutely, yes. Um, but I, watching it, I wasn't too worried about the missed opportunities um, that happens. I, I have to say there's a tiny part of me for the first time that thought, oh, I wonder if Virgil van Dijk is going to be the player he was after his operation. I didn't feel he commanded the box aerially like he used to. Um, I think in all other respects, he was just as majestic, but he didn't seem to, um, didn't seem to judge every flight of the ball the way he used to. I wonder if there's a reluctance to get too high because he has to land on his knee. I hate to be the one to say it, but I feel like somebody has to say it. Is he, is he, is he going to be the, he's clearly, clearly very good still. I'm just wondering if he's at, you know, two or three percent below his best. I just didn't feel. I felt if Virgil had been at his optimum, then Brentford wouldn't wouldn't have been such bullies in uh, the Liverpool box. Well, I, I think he's expected to be beneath his one hundred percent given the length of time that he's missed, and he still played what five six games so far this season. So he's still getting back towards one hundred percent match fitness and reading you know, all of those situations again. And of course, the speed of the plays is important. You know, once he's absolutely 100%, you know, he's going to be back to his Rolls-Royce best, Alison. You can't Thank doubt you. Virgin Thank van Dijk, can you? Thank you, Hugh. You. I'm not doubting him. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not doubting him. <laughs> I just needed a bit of counselling there. Thank you, Hugh. I'm so grateful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a major, major injury and a long time missed for a player of his age as well. He will... I think, get back to it, but it will take, you know, he's not 21 anymore. It's going to take a little bit of time for him to get back to absolutely 100% match speed. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. Two points dropped for Liverpool. Very entertaining game. And once again, Brentford showing everyone that, that I think they're going to be a bit of a handful at times this season. Uh, remember, if you're enjoying the game podcast, leave us a review, rate us and make sure you're subscribed as well, wherever you're listening. And um, go online as well. Make sure you're subscribed to the Times and the Sunday Times. Uh, it's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Up next, we talk about alcohol returning to football stadia. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Times reported a few days ago that Tracy Crouch MP's independent football review would recommend lifting the 36-year ban on drinking alcohol while watching football. Due to hooliganism, fans haven't been allowed to drink within the sight of a football pitch since 1985. Um, it's got people talking this, um, you know, whether it should come back in. Of course, there are other sports, cricket and rugby union, where you can have a pint in your seat. And it doesn't seem to be an issue with those sports. Some saying football needs it back. Tom Roddy, I'm going to start with you on this one. What do you think? I think the the immediate instinct, Hugh, when I read Matt Lawton's story last week um, with Tracy Crouch's recommendation was um, was picturing ca- uh, picturing cups of beer being chucked in football stadiums, and it, it was funny because. I had the exact same reaction to Alison's um, excellent report on peace uh, yesterday in the Sunday Times, remembering being at the, um, I was at the Johan Cruyff Arena for the Euros and just was pelted with beer, cups of beer that fl- rained down. Just you on in particular, you got recognised, did you? <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but the, and, and the thing is, it comes at a bit of a strange time where you've got the in this country where you had the final of Euro 2020 and the the events outside Wembley, which were fueled largely by alcohol. But the 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 thing is, and, and Tracy Crouch makes this point clear, is that it's it's not actually about these huge events. What it's about is the the lower league clubs and helping to try and make them more sustainable. Um, and I, I occasionally go to Maidenhead United, who are just uh, down the road from me, and friends sort of sell it as a as a great day out because you're close to the action. Uh, you, you're you, it's it's cheap, it's easy to get in. You don't have to travel, and one of the things included is that you can you can have a beer while sat watching football. And the strange part is that when the FA Cup comes in um, and the TV cameras come in, you can only drink in the tiny little clubhouse that they've got at York Road. Um, and so I think it it works in this way. It's meant to, you know, the, the, the day out is meant to be a part of that and sustaining clubs, these lower league clubs in League One who are, who are struggling at the moment. Um, I, I think... For, for me, the way I'd like to see it happen at grounds is probably that you can take, I think the key part is that you can take um, a drink into the ground from before kickoff and then from half time. It's the idea of it being constantly open and just an open bar to keep going up to it. That's, that's the only issue I would see if, if that happened. Yeah, it's a good point you make. I actually was by Maidenhead United at the weekend uh, just after full time and saw Grimsby fans, Gregor's old team, pouring into the pub after a one-all draw. And I thought, this is nice. The Grimsby fans are staying in Maidenhead and having a drink at full time. That's great. But I wonder what the behaviour might be like 
had they been, you know, having drinks all the way through. So it's a good point you raise about whether you can have, you know, take a drink to your seat at the start of the first half and start of the second half, or whether you can constantly go back to the bath throughout the game and bring pints back to your seat, which you can do um, at the other sports that I mentioned. Um, Alison, what do you think? Would it work? And is it all about those lower league clubs? Would it work in the major 60,000 seater stadiums as well? Bigger picture here is that we've had football has evolved. Um, you can argue what the biggest factors in that were. Um, Italia 90 was definitely one, but and the fact that stadiums were safer um, because of, of the post hills for all seating laws. But if you if you take a snapshot of 1985, who was going to games and how they behaved and who goes now, it's much more family orientated. Uh, you get more women and children at matches. You you do feel the atmosphere on the way in and on the way out isn't um, aggressive. It's even even if one team has been you know horribly smashed, there's no. There's no aggression on the streets outside. No puns and intended. You mean smashed in terms of the result, right? Yeah, but obviously I'm thinking <laughs> about alcohol and therefore I'm thinking about getting smashed. But um, I, so my concern about this is that it, what, we, what this it bring booze back and you get a return to um, the lad culture, which will mean slowly the people who go to games, won't. it'll be people who just don't feel this for them anymore. Just as, and I made this point in my piece, if, you, if you're a family walking down the high street and you want to get your uh, scampi in a basket lunch and you look in a pub and it's full of blokes who are singing and downing the beers fast and throwing a few around when they get loud, whether it's to do with football or not, that's not the pub you're going to go in with your family. You're going to go in the pub where people are, are sat down and it's just more mingly you know, it feels more like somewhere that's welcoming. The thing is, alcohol does make people more tribal, less welcoming. They behave differently. If you, I just honestly think, if you sat in the ground watching the football with access to alcohol while you're watching the football, you behave differently. So, I, you know, after the booze ban, I didn't have to wade through puddles of piss because if you if you just stood there. And you've got three pints in your belly before kickoff. You've carried, and you know, you carry two or three for the game, or you're getting up and stumbling to the bar for another one. Whichever the whatever rules are allowed, and you want you want to take a piss, and you don't want to miss any of the game. You just do it on the floor. I mean, it, it, we will we'll go backwards. I'm not used to. I'm not exaggerating. That's how it used to be. I think it's called hot legging. But you know, it's like <laughs> you just. Do we, do we want it to be like that? Because it's not going to be, if you bring back booze, people are not going to sit down holding a glass of Pinot Noir and a cheese, a cheese straw in their other hand going, yeah, 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 yeah. I just love that formation. I love it. Depends who you are. Yeah, they might have Chelsea. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just going back. Why do you want to go backwards? We've, we, we've managed to create football that overall is okay, and when it isn't okay, it's usually because of the drink. Q, QV, the Wembley nastiness. I'll forget the mixture of drink and drugs. Though you say it's all about the alcohol, Alison. You know, there is a drug culture as well in away days in football. I think that has to be taken into account. You don't want to mix the two. Yeah, my only problem with that is the immediate correlation between laddish behaviour and 
having there's already alcohol sold in stadiums and having it in the 45 minutes in each half you know there's people still get tanked up before games there's people who get tanked up on the concourse before the game there's people who go and have a pint or two at half time I don't see that that 45 minutes if there I don't think that that's going to you know if their behaviour is throwing beers in the, in the air and it makes it a, a more hostile place for you know for families to be and absolutely it's a no but I don't <laughs> My 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 kind of instinct is not to not to immediately think that that is just going to instantly happen. I think there's been too many occasions over the years where football fans have just been treated as this one sort of homogenous group of jobs, and that immediately if we if they're allowed to take a a plastic uh, container of beer or finish it, as Tom said, that's a good solution. I, I think if you can just take it to your seat and finish it there, that immediately it's going to turn into some kind of carnage, scene of carnage. I, I don't think that that's the case. And I think it's slightly, I don't know. Patronising? Uh, yeah, maybe. I think towards football fans in general. Uh, don't get me wrong. You know, I go on trains all around the country and I see some some pretty, <laughs> some fans that I would rather not sit close to in a, in a train carriage. And I go to stands and, you know, the press seats are not always as plush as in the Premier League and you're around people and whatnot. Uh, there, are, there, are the, there are those people. I'm just saying that I don't think I think it's an easy kind of quick correlation just to say that we're going to step backwards in time if fans are trusted to finish their drinks at their seats. I'm not saying it would be an immediate thing. I just think it's, it would slowly degenerate. I mean, nobody, I mean, both Tom and I have experienced lager landing on top of us. It wasn't Pepsi. It wasn't Fanta. It was alcohol. I think if you're at a game and you've got alcohol on you and you're drinking as you watch you behaved you behave differently it's you i think almost you forget your where you are that you have a responsibility to the people around you it's just like way hey it's it's just encouraging a level of aggression that we've almost eradicated yeah i i, I it's also um in the last few weeks we've kind of seen a little window into what it might look like anyway as well because you've got that brilliant clip which is hilarious to see um of jude bellingham catching this cup plastic cup of beer um and feigning or taking a sip from it but which was which is a brilliant piece of footage but he's still the person who has lobbed that has decided to try and hit him with a cup of beer um and a similar thing happened in the england game recently didn't it you had all those cups of drink thrown at them um and you can see that you can see that happening you know yesterday albamiang when he scored his goal he celebrated he did the um the adebayor sliding on front of it in on his knees in front of the tottenham hotspur fans and you could just see um cups being thrown at him if 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 beer was being drunk and and I remember also just going back to it's not necessarily just about um, about us as you know kind of reporters being hit by beer but also there was a um, there was a moment at the Johan Cruyff Arena where people you know people get uh, excited in the moment and just for some reason want to chuck the cups in the air and but then after the game I remember seeing the fans sort of filtering around and we were sat just over the in the in the second tier up and there were a few lads or uh, guys in front of me sort of milling around and fans waiting below trying to get shirts off the players and this guy just 
tipped his beer that he had, the dregs of his beer, just tipped it over onto the fans below and was laughing at it. And you just think it's it's just needless. That's what will happen in the, in, in the big games. Would you change the footballing experience that we've got right now? I quite like it. I don't know. I just, uh, I don't, you know, I don't think, you know, the legislation changing would be a bad thing. And I think you could leave it in the hands of clubs. Well, it's, it's financial. Every club's going to sell beers as much as they can. Well, they're not, the money, they're, not, they? they're not if they're going to get people complaints of, from families saying we're not coming back anymore. We're not renewing our season tickets if if there's beer flying around everywhere. I think all I'm saying is there's been a lot of instances over the years where football fans have been... How many football clubs are going to say that these guys spend 100 quid each on beers or 50 quid each on beers every single game that they come to your season ticket is worth 20 quid a game to us. So again, for financial reasons, if this is the reason why it should be being done and you run a business, you, you know, you'd rather run it like a nightclub than a nursery. That's not a good way to run a business, you. I why? think a good way, because a good way to run a business is by keeping your customers happy. Not just, this is the not point. just pandering your customers- to the ones who no, pay the most you're, and, you're- and behave the worst. No, but the, your customer base changes. You know, a lot of businessmen would say the best way to do business is to make as much money as possible. You know, that, that's, you know, I'm talking about, you know, I don't know about what you think about the morals of ownership in football, whether you think they, they care more about the, the family ticket than the people that come in and spend loads of money at the bar. That's not my experience of people in business. That's all I'm going to say. It's turned into Dragon's Den a little bit. Hugh is onto something because... One of, one of the big changes in football has been the rise of football tourism. And the football tourists tend to be families who go to the club shop and spend an absolute fortune on merchandise. It's a, it's a big day out. They spend premium amount on tickets and a hell of a lot in the club shop. The cl- all clubs of all sizes and all divisions love football tourists. I mean, they do. They adore them. They are not going to come to a ground if they think they're going to have lager chucked over the, their heads, ruining their lovely jack, new jacket that they bought They bought in Carnaby Street because they're doing the London thing. It's, it, it will slowly, it's not going to happen overnight, but it will slowly make it a, um, a less attractive product, I think, to the people who do spend money. So there is a financial reason not to bring back booze as well. Uh, I mean, and, and also, Gregor, I mean, how many pints would you have had thrown in your face, taking a throw in? had there been pints available in the front row when you were playing, you know, you don't want to get covered in beer when you're playing the game because that could easily happen as well. So, you know, like I say, I'm thinking very much worst case scenario here. Of course, there are many, many, you know, opinions across the spectrum, but um, personally, I wouldn't go for it. And you decide what you think. Um, Look, finally, before we go, I I wanted you all to pick out one thing that really stood out from a particular game or two for you this weekend um, because I think it was a very good weekend of football more to come as well in the Premier League tonight if you're listening on Monday Um, Tom I'll start with you what do you think Hugh I'm going to uh, steal a fascinating uh, fact from Bill Edgar's always brilliant column on a Monday Um, and one this morning is is that Leicester City's Jamie Vardy became the first player in the Premier League era to score the perfect hat-trick that included an own goal. It was his uh, right foot and left foot shots for for the goals for Leicester and his own goal was a header um, for Burnley. So there's one of Edgar's brilliant facts. Not the greatest weekend for fantasy football when it comes to Jamie Vardy, but he tried to pull it back, didn't he? Gregor, what do you think? I'll just have to talk about Raul Jimenez. 335 days without without a goal. Um, 
and what a goal. The way he kind of that had everything. The way he's wrestled with Bednarek, I think it was, and he kind of shrugged him off and then cut inside beautifully, sat the defender down, slotted the goal in, and you could see the kind of outpouring of emotion and how happy his teammates were as well to see to see him score. And they need him scoring. That's their third goal of the season. I think only Nor- Norwich have scored fewer. So a brilliant moment for uh, him and his after his, his uh, well, what was a life-threatening uh, skull fracture injury 11 months ago. Alison, what did you pick out? Norwich are making me so cross. I mean, what is the point? They are, it's unbelievable. They've, they've now got officially the worst start to um, a Premier League season. The only team that's come close was Crystal Palace in 2017. But then Crystal Palace had Frank de Boer, who knew nothing about the Premier League. He was new to the Premier League and he was trying to impose a philosophy that didn't suit the Premier League. So you could, you, there are excuses there. It was an experiment that failed. But Daniel Farke has been there before. He's supposed to have learned all his lessons, absorbed them, got his team back up and prepared differently with a bit of nous. But they're, they're even worse. What is the, I mean, what's the point? It's really, it, and it's, it's just so frustrating when you just know the result. I mean, what's the point of it? I mean, they need to get their act together quick or they should be banned from ever being promoted again. Okay. I mean, it's not just because it was against Everton, Alison. It's genuine Norwich feelings. It's ge- no, come on. <laughs> and can anyone bother to defend them? To be fair, Paul, said, Paul Joyce's report said that he's lost 75% Farka of his Premier League games. Um, and I don't think anyone's ever done that and kept their job. So as much as the whole Norwich... Um, blueprint and philosophy and you know it's laudable um it ain't working it ain't working in the premier league and that's actually when you include their back end of last season that's 16 consecutive premier league defeats the back end of sorry two seasons ago the last relegation campaign so you know you can't have much longer yeah i agree with you on that one um there are a couple of things that i wanted to pick out but i'm going to shoehorn them into thursday I'll give you a little preview though. Leeds United and Brighton and Hove Albion. We probably will discuss those teams both on Thursday. Thank you for being with us for the past hour or so. Champions League football to come as well. That's on Thursday. Remember, make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism. But thank you, Tom Roddy, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. Just to let you know, go online, check out thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. You can get yourself one month free right now. We will see you on Thursday. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.